This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Just a note before starting. Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. My name is Anna Thomas and today I have a mini-sode for you. So a mini-sode usually has a number of shorter stories. They're not really long enough just to have in a regular episode. So I put these stories together to create a mini-sode. So let's get into the stories today. This first story is about two boys who lived in Jacksonville, Florida in 2005. They had only moved to the area about six months earlier and after meeting each other at their new school, they became close friends. Brian Hayes was 13 years old and Mark Degner was 12 years old. Mark's mother described him as a caring boy, but a boy who could easily be manipulated as he had had a developmental delay of about three to five years behind his chronological age. Once a man had asked him if he could ride his bike, but then the man took off and never returned the bike. But Mark couldn't understand why the man didn't bring the bike back to him. He also suffered from bipolar and took various medications for his conditions. When his family decided to move to Jacksonville, he was excited about the move and looked forward to going to a new school and making new friends. The other boy, Brian, had similar developmental delays as Mark had, and bipolar as well, which resulted in violent outbursts. His young life had been much more turbulent than Mark's. He had been abused by his father as a young boy, and he was put into foster care, which then saw him being moved from one foster home to another. Brian also had high blood pressure and a kidney problem, so together with all of these conditions, his foster carers may not have been able to cope with his very challenging behaviour. His mother had her own issues, and so his grandparents filed for custody of Brian, and they were successful. So he went to live in Jacksonville with them, but as they were in their 70s, they too struggled with catering for his very special needs. As much as they loved their grandson, they felt that they couldn't provide him what he needed and they ultimately decided to place him in a facility called the Daniel House. There he was provided with therapy and behaviour modification, but his grandparents continued to visit him regularly, and the staff reported that Brian was doing well at the facility. His outbursts had decreased, and he was much better able to manage his own behaviour. So Brian lived at the Daniel House, but attended the Paxton Middle School in Jacksonville, and that's where he met Mark. They both attended the school's special education unit. So it was just another day in February 2005, and Mark and Brian were at school. Around 1pm that day, Mark had an argument with his teacher and stormed out of his classroom. He was heard banging angrily on the lockers outside the room. And that's when he saw his friend Brian outside, and both of the boys then began walking away together. A staff member at the school saw the boys walking towards the baseball field, 
They kept going until they reached the back fence and were able to leave the field through an unlocked gate. The person who saw the boys called the school's resource officer but had to leave a voicemail as he wasn't there. She told him about the boys leaving the school grounds and in the US, school resource officers are sworn law enforcement officers responsible for safety and crime prevention in schools. By the end of the school day, the boys had not returned. The staff at the Daniel House had expected Brian to arrive home from school, and when he hadn't, by 6pm, they called the police. And Mark wasn't reported missing to the police until 9pm, after his mother got home and he wasn't there. Brian's grandparents weren't informed that he was missing until the next day. When the police went to the school to investigate what had happened, it was discovered that the boys had left their school bags and coats in their classroom, and the medication that they needed was also still at the school. After questioning the boys' families and the school staff and students, a picture emerged of two boys who had previously spoken about running away. Mark had never run away from home, but Brian had run away once but came back after only a short time. Students reported the boys talking about running away a number of times. There was also an incident at home time when students were getting on the school buses. Mark and Brian snuck away, but the school resource officer saw them and they were escorted back to the bus. Mark's parents and Brian's grandparents set to work publicising the boys' disappearance. Flyers were put up and they did all they could to make the community aware of the missing boys. But day after day and week after week, there was still no sign of the boys. The police did receive numerous sightings of the boys, but all of these leads led nowhere. Brian's grandparents were dedicated to finding the boys. They appeared on various talk shows. The case was also covered on America's Most Wanted and their images were placed on prison playing cards. But sadly, the boys remain missing to this day, 17 years later. But over that time, there has been much criticism of how the school handled the boys' disappearance, or should I say, their apparent lack of action. No one seemed to take the situation seriously. Their parents weren't called, the police weren't called. Perhaps the fact that they were special needs kids, the staff didn't take it too seriously, as kids tended to return in a short time. But the boys left at 1pm, and yes, being gone a short time may have been okay, but they still hadn't alerted anyone by the end of the school day. The families had to raise the alarm themselves. From my job as a teacher, I have an insight into situations like this, where kids get upset about something and leave the classrooms. In my experience at various schools, when a child leaves a classroom, someone will go after them to see where they go. As a teacher, I will look outside my room to see where they are. And in most cases, they are just outside somewhere, cooling down. And this is a strategy that we teach the kids. Just go and sit down on a bench outside. And we will also ask a friend to go and sit with them. And usually the situation sorts itself out. 
If there is another adult in the room, such as a teacher's aide, then they will go and manage the student. But it really depends on the student. Each child is different and responds to different things. But most of the time, these situations end quickly. But on the occasion that a child leaves and is not within sight of anyone, then the office will need to be called. Meanwhile, we may ask the teacher next door to look after our class and we can go and try to find the child ourselves. Some kids have a designated safe space which has been discussed with the child beforehand, so often the child can be found at their special place. Often it's the special education unit or another teacher that they are close with. But at no point do we think, oh, he's okay, he'll be back when he's ready. But this is what appears to have happened to these boys. It was thought that they would just come back on their own accord. So there were a number of very critical hours that went by with no one taking any action. I really believe it would have been a different outcome if that teacher who saw them had gone after them across the baseball field. It's quite a common occurrence for the principal or deputy principals to be called about a student leaving their classroom and sometimes you see them walking around the school looking for a child, but they act immediately. I've been in situations where I've been in a meeting with other teachers and the principal or deputy principals, and then they are called out to look for a child. When this happens, they drop everything. It's their duty of care. So this school, in my opinion, was totally negligent. And this was only 2005. If this had happened back in the 70s or the 80s, then yes, Procedures weren't so strict back then, but in 2005, this school had no excuse. And I didn't even hear that there was any investigation into the school's action. So the most supported theory in this case was that the boys ran away, supported by the fact that they had made this known to others. And yes, it does seem the most plausible theory, but I think they would have come back at some point had they not met with some type of foul play. Given their intellectual impairments, I think they were manipulated by someone. I don't think they got hurt in some way or got lost, because the chances are their bodies would have eventually been found. As seen, it was reported that Mark had had an argument with his teacher, which is what precipitated them running away. However, the records on this case show another slight twist to this theory. There was another report that I heard on this story which differed to the story of Mark having the argument with the teacher. Instead of a spontaneous argument, it was reported that the boys actually planned the whole thing. Mark deliberately argued with the teacher to create a diversion and Brian was waiting outside for him. They carried out the plan and took off. But given that these boys had special needs, I find this premeditated plan really not very likely. If they had indeed planned it, wouldn't they have taken their bags? That's why I think Mark did have an argument. I wouldn't imagine any kid planning to run away would just go with nothing. However, this belief of mine was challenged after hearing from a lady who was the director of a shelter for juvenile runaways. She stated that lack of preparation is typical for young runaways. 
these kids often turn up at shelters with only the clothes they are wearing and are very tired and hungry. So maybe this is what happened to the boys. They may have eventually sought shelter, but sadly became the victims of foul play. So although the boys have never been found, there is one person who has been named recently as a person of interest in their disappearance. This man was once a youth pastor in the same area where the boys lived, and it was only this year in 2022 that he went to trial for the murder of a boy who was found dismembered in the same town. This man was subsequently found guilty of the murder and given a life sentence. He also still faces separate charges of child pornography. This boy had been murdered 10 years before the two schoolboys went missing, but he was only apprehended recently. But given that it was in the same area, it's been speculated that he was also responsible for what happened to the two boys. So it remains to be seen if this man will be pursued in the missing boy's case. And now I'd like to finish this episode with a good apple story about a very special young schoolboy. As a teacher, after kids come back to school after school holidays, it's common to talk about what they did on their holidays. And while we think that kids get up to all sorts of interesting things, it's not always the case. If I ask my kids to write about what they did on their holiday, some say they didn't do anything, that their holidays were boring. And sadly for some kids, this is the case. Their parents might work and so they don't get the opportunity to go away anywhere and so they just stay at home. So during the school holidays last year at the end of 2021, there was an eight-year-old boy named Dylan Helbig who lived in the state of Idaho in the US. But far from being bored, Dylan was doing something that he really enjoyed, and that was writing stories. So during his holiday, he wrote a story with a Christmas theme, and he put himself in the story. He called the story The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas, and he spelt Christmas C-R-I-S-M-I-S without the H or the T. But we can forgive him for that because he's only in second grade. He wrote the story in a notebook that he had and he drew illustrations which he coloured with pencils. The storybook ended up being 81 pages long and of course he was very proud of his book. It described his adventures putting an exploding star on his Christmas tree and being catapulted back to the first Thanksgiving and the North Pole. He told his parents that he wanted to put his book in their local library, which they thought was quite amusing. But then a few days later, he was at his grandmother's house and asked her to take him to the library so that he could put his book on the shelf. And of course, she thought he was just joking, but he wanted people to read his book. And so he decided to sneak it into the library. So while in the library with his grandmother, he managed to put it on a shelf when no one was looking. They later left, but that certainly was not the end of the story. That night, he couldn't keep his secret any longer and he told his mother what he had done. And while she thought that it was quite amusing, she thought they better go back to the library and find the book. Dylan showed her where he had put it, but it wasn't there anymore. 
She then told the librarian about what had happened and asked that they not throw it away if they managed to find it. But she was most pleased when the staff at the library told her that they had found his book. Not only that, but they had read the book and they found it very funny and entertaining. And one person even took it home and read it to their own son. This is what the librarian had to say. I thought it was very cute. I was struck by how much effort went into it. I definitely thought we should do something special with it and not just hand it back to him. It was very well done and deserved some recognition. We quickly determined that it was a good book, a high-quality book that was very relevant to our community. It fit all of our collection development criteria. So they were so impressed by his book that they asked if they could put a barcode on the book and formally add it to the library's collection. Dylan's parents were overjoyed, but you can imagine how excited Dylan was. The librarian said, Dylan is a confident guy and a generous guy. He wanted to share the story. I don't think it's a self-promotion thing. He just genuinely wanted other people to be able to enjoy his story. He's been a lifelong library user, so he knows how books are shared. It was a sneaky act, but Dylan's book was far too obviously special an item for us to consider getting rid of it. I also kind of think that he might become a librarian. We in libraries love stories and love to share them. So Dylan's story was then featured in the media and he became somewhat of a celebrity, which made his book in high demand. And within no time, there was a long waiting list of people who wanted to read his book. And even another library in another state wanted to arrange an interlibrary loan. But they had to decline as the waiting list was just too long. The library had a four-week maximum borrowing time. So if people kept it for that long, it would be a very long wait for everyone who wanted to read the book. And of course, libraries will purchase extra copies of popular books. But Dylan's book was a one of a kind, so that wasn't possible. And here is Dylan himself explaining how he put the book in the library. There was a lot of librarians that I had to sneak past. So do you know what I did? I covered up this part and I covered the back with my body and I just snuck it in. I always be sneaky, like how I get chocolate. And Dylan's father said, he put the book together in like four days. With him putting it in the library, we weren't surprised that he did anything like that. When he wants to make something happen, he makes something happen. And his mother said, his imagination is just constantly going and he's a very creative little boy. He just comes up with these amazing stories and adventures, and we just kind of follow along. He's always had books around him. I've asked him what he loves about books the most, and he, of course, loves the pictures and loves the story, which I think is pretty cool that he actually pays attention to the story part of it. Dylan didn't know that he was going to become famous from this. That was never his intent. I think his intent was just to get his book on a shelf where people could read it. And then what happened was that other kids told the library that they wanted to write books for the library too. And one of his own school friends said, It was really cool. I wish I was you. And then a local author 
also offered to work with Dylan to create a children's writing workshop at the library. And get this, even publishers have contacted the library about officially publishing the book. His mother said, We just want to do the best job that we can as parents to raise a good kid. And the fact that he's inspiring other kids, and to be honest, other adults, and he's only eight years old, it's incredibly humbling. My heart is so full. We're very, very proud of him. The library even created a special award inspired by Dylan, and he was the first person to receive the Woudini Award for Best Young Novelist. And Woudini was the library's owl mascot. And here is some audio of Dylan himself and his parents. My next guest is proving that the journey to living a great story and telling one too can start at a very young age. I'm Dylan, this is my book, and, and it's called The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas by Dylan Helbig himself. It's about a Christmas story with a giant turkey that eats me. He's been writing like little comic book type style books since he was about five. Why I wanted to put it on the library is because I wanted people to like see my imagination. My mom was actually babysitting him. And the library was right next to her house. And I told my parents, but they thought I was kidding. So I told my grandma and she thought I was kidding. Well, I said, Nana, we came here to put my book in the library. And she said, oh, that's what we're here for? (laughs) (laughs) Well, guess what? Dylan's story struck such a nerve. It went viral, made national news in the Washington Post, NPR, People Magazine. He is in demand. And guess what, Tampa? We've got Dylan for a daytime exclusive, the eight-year-old superstar Dylan with his mom, Susan, his dad, Alex, from their home in Boise. Hi, Dylan. How are you? Hi. Hi. I love your book, The Adventures of Dylan Helvig's Christmas by Dylan Helvig himself. You said grandma didn't, you know, think you were going to do it. Your mom and dad didn't think you were going to do it, but you knew you were going to get your book in that library. What was it like? When you put it on the shelf? Um, well, if you want to know how I put it on the I, shelf, well, I yes. can answer that. That's a better question. Yes, how did you put it on the shelf, young Dylan? Um, I covered, I, I have the book right here. I covered this part with my hand uh-huh. and the rest with my body. Oh. Then I, I, I put it on one of the shelves. Just like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Susan, um, you, you didn't believe the plan. The plan worked. He's now a superstar. Washington Post, yeah. NPR. I mean, this guy, <laughs> is he getting an ego now? What's going on in the house here? <laughs> We're trying to keep everybody humble here. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe how this has taken off? Where There's a waiting list, by the way. It's a library, mm-hmm. and there's a waiting list, library catalog. You can't get your hands on it. Um, can you believe this? It's been insane. The uh, library told us last time we checked there was about 135 people at this point, and so mm-hmm. um, it, it e- equates to about a five-year wait list to check the book out, which is Mind-blowing. <laughs> Mind-blowing. <laughs> it's crazy. Alex, so there's one copy. As I said, it's added to the library catalog. Um, you have to probably get on the waiting list, and you know the author. 
<laughs> yeah, luckily the, the branch manager um, let us take it home for a little bit here. Uh, he had it saved for us, and so we have it for now and seeing how we can get it uh, back to the library. Dylan, are you, are you writing a second? Is it there's our follow-up here? Yeah, yeah, there's another one. And it's on the couch somewhere. <laughs> he, just, he started working on the second book a few days ago, so that is in the works. Oh, my gosh. What's well, it called? The second book is in the works. I'm sure a movie will follow. I don't know who you want to play you in the movie, but you sure have lived a great story. Alex, I'm sure you have to be so proud of this guy. Oh, we're, we're ecstatic. We're so proud of him. Um, you know, he's been wanting, he told us he's been wanting to put a book in the library since he was five. And so, you know, he's always written smaller books, like little five, ten pages. And, uh, but then this was the first one that he had a full, this is 81 pages. Oh my gosh. So, a full book of illustration, of illustration and, words and words on pretty much every page. Yeah, every page, and he numbered every single one to oh. make sure that it was kept in order. And uh, you know, he put it where he knew he's been going to the library since he was a baby, and so he knew that the library is where he could get his book read. Oh my gosh! And he put it in. He, he wrote it. it, illustrated, self-published. That's the result of great parents teaching him how to live a great journey and own his story. Oh, so thank congratulations. you. Alex, Susan, Thank Dylan, you. I'm so happy for you. I'm going to add my name to the list, so I guess when I'm 60, which is very soon probably, <laughs> I'll see the book. So congratulations, buddy. You're awesome. Thank you. All right, and today, so since there are only there's only one copy, really, truly, of Dylan's book, nobody in the audience is getting one, but I'm going to ask you to go to your local library, get your name on the waiting list to read it. And Dylan then had an idea to write a sequel. And he also wants to write another book about a closet that eats jackets. Now, Dylan has also created his own YouTube channel. And he has posted a video where he talks about his book. But of course, being the entrepreneur that he is, he doesn't read the whole book or give too much of it away. So here he is talking about his book. Welcome to the very first video, and I hope you like some of my books and videos. And one of the books I made is this one, The Adventures of, D of, Dylan, of Dylan Helbig's Christmas by Dylan Helbig himself. First page, you can see my house, and it says chapter one to the North Pole. You can see my house and my little dog house that doesn't really exist in my backyard. And on the second page, I'm decorating the tree. Then on the third page, the tree falls and then I fall. Then the star falls too. And I, di and I didn't know it was a bomb. So then it explodes and explodes. Then, then, um, the entire house is broken, and I pick up the star. Then Santa came, which is pretty cool. Then I fell into the year 1621, which was the very first Thanksgiving. Then... 
then a giant turkey tried to attack me. Then a giant turkey ate me. Ah! Then I landed on its stomach. And if you want to see the full adventures of Dylan Hobbit of the adventures of Dylan Hobbit's Christmas, go check it out. Comment down below if you like this one and subscribe, smash that like button, and ring the bell. Bye. Wasn't that a lovely story, right? From my perspective as a teacher, what he did is certainly unique because there are really kids who do this sort of thing, write a story on their own initiative without it being a task that their teacher has asked them to do, which really leads me to feel that by having this sort of interest and drive at only eight years old must be a sign for what he might do in his future. And the other thing that I was really impressed about is that his parents had no involvement in the book, which is obvious because there are numerous spelling and grammar errors, such as winter is spelt W-I-N-T-R without the E, and was was spelt W-U-S. And you can also see that all of the drawings are his. The book looks like something that an eight-year-old would do. And as a teacher, I am loath to set kids' tasks for them to do at home because you know that their parents or other siblings will help them so it doesn't end up being their own work. So I'm really glad that his parents allowed him to use all of his own creativity. So there you go. That's Dylan's story. I was really, really happy when I found this story that I could give you a good Apple story for a change that wasn't sad, so I hope you enjoyed that one. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called The Karate Kid. The father took revenge on his son's teacher. What happened? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote about Dylan, written by Maria Montessori. Free the child's potential and you will transform him into the world. Bye for now and remember to be a good Apple.